Well, good morning, everyone. I'm uh, so glad you're here. Uh, I was just thinking a minute ago as Zach was praying, and what a privilege it is for me to get to be part of you. And uh, I just love you. Thank you for that. So thanks to Zach and the team for leading us in worship and song. And now let's worship in the Word, shall we? We're continuing our journey through the book of 1 Corinthians. We've come to chapter 7 today, and the message is titled, Questions from Corinth, Sex, Singleness, and Marriage for Followers of Jesus. So I want to begin by asking you a question. How many of you believe that God knows what's best for our lives? Can I see your hands? Yeah, right? But I want to ask you a second question. How many of you would agree with me that sometimes what God teaches us about what is best is at odds with the culture and the world around us? Can I see your hands? So I want to give you a heads up today as we begin our reading an application of this chapter, these first 16 verses. Some of you may be relatively new to the Bible. You may be new to church. You may be new to the gospel. And you may hear some things today that are new to you. You may be challenged by some things Because if you've just absorbed the teaching of the world about these subjects, you're going to hear some things today that challenge. They may be convict, but they will definitely push back on what the world has taught us. We're going to see some truths about sex from God's Word, marriage, What does the Bible teach about sex and single lives as well? And I'm convinced that God does know what's best for us. His revealed will in His Word, when we receive it and obey it, will help us walk in paths that will be filled with His blessing. So Paul starts out in first verse, he says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So I want to pause right here for a moment. Paul helped plant this church in Corinth around 53 AD. And now it's four to five years later. This is still a very young church. He's in Ephesus, which was across the Aegean Sea from Corinth. He receives this letter, which would have been an easy process in that day from the church at Corinth, and they had multiple issues, as we'll see as we go throughout this book we've already seen. One of those is there was rampant sexual immorality in the church. And so they've written him a letter, and they're asking him some questions, questions that pertain to sex, to singleness, to marriage. Questions about what does it mean to follow Jesus in regard to these matters? 
And he's going to answer those questions today for us in these first 16 verses. Let me just say, though, that this is not all the Bible has to say about these topics. This is not a full comprehensive treatment. But there will be a lot to learn here today. So let's look at it. Let's look at verse 1 in the fullness. It says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Do you see that in quotes? So what's going on here? Well, what's happening is some of the people in the church in Corinth were saying, now that we follow Jesus and we've come out of this rampant, sexually immoral culture, if we're going to be holy people, should we abstain from sexual relations altogether? And I want you to look at verse 2. Paul, Paul addresses that statement by saying this, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So right out of the chute, what Paul's saying, and this is an endorsement of this, he's teaching us that the biblical standard of monogamous male female marriage relationship. That's the standard. It means bigamy is not appropriate for Christ followers. It means polygamy is not appropriate for Christ followers. Same-sex relationships are not appropriate for Christ followers. He says each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Then he dives in a little deeper. Let's look at verse 3 together. He says, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. And so what he's saying there is not only marital uh, sexual relationships in the context and confines of marriage, but the intimacy. He says the husband should give that to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. So what Paul's teaching here is there's mutuality there should be mutuality in marriage. And then look at verse 4. He says, For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Then Paul goes on to say, Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So what are the principles Paul's teaching? Some are saying, look, if I follow Jesus, does that mean that I ought to not have any sex at all, not even in marriage? And I want to remind us that of the culture in Corinth, we've alluded to it earlier, but to Corinthianize, which was a verb in that day, meant to teach promiscuity, sex of all kinds, anything went. You have to remember that in this city, this important Roman city, a city where the East met the West in a culture that was thriving economically, there would be a thousand temple prostitutes that would come down each day from their dwelling and ply their trade openly in the streets. That's what it was like. Anything went. So these people were coming out of this culture. They were coming to faith. 
And so here's the first principle Paul is teaching. It's number one in your notes, if you're a note taker. It's that sex is God's good gift for a husband and wife in marriage. It's part of his plan. It's what he intends. Here's the second principle that we see in these first five verses as well, is that sex in marriage is for multiple purposes. It's intended for procreation. God said, be fruitful and multiply. For pleasure, to increase intimacy and companionship. And then what we just saw in verse 5, to decrease the temptation to sexual immorality. So can I just talk to all the married folks just for a minute? There's a truth embedded in these first five verses, and here it is, that God wants you to have a great sex life. Can you say amen to that? That was kind of weak. (laughs) I know in some ways this is an R-rated sermon, but this is the text. It's true. In the Bible it says it's for all the reasons I just mentioned, But then Paul goes a little further. Look at me. We're going to look at verses 6 through 9. He says, now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God. One of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So what's going on here? Well, the first thing we see is Paul is acknowledging that he is single. Now, we really don't know his whole marital story. It's just not in Scripture. So we don't know authoritatively. Some would say that this means that Paul was always single. He never married. And that may have been the case. Some would say no, like most Pharisees, and Paul was a Pharisee before he became a Christ follower. Some would say that because he was a Pharisee, because of the requirement in his day that Pharisees be married, that by inference you could make the assumption and Uh, the case that he was married, but that for some reason something happened to his wife. Maybe she abandoned him when he decided to follow Christ after that experience on the road to Damascus. She said, I can't go with you there. Maybe she died. We don't know. We just don't know. But Paul's saying that for now I wish that you would remain as I am. Well, why did he say that? And we get the answer. It's going to be in next week's text, but it's verse 27. He talks about impending crisis and doom, if you will, that was coming. What that could be, we don't know again. But I will say this, Nero had just become emperor of Rome. And for those of you that know anything about Roman history, Nero was insane. His reign was marked by murder 
and intrigue and all kinds of perversion. You can imagine it, it happened. He also persecuted the church and Christians in fashions that are indescribable. So maybe what Paul is saying is that, look, if you're single, hey, kind of circle the wagons because tough times are coming. Hard things are on the horizon. Stay as I am. But what Paul's teaching here, whatever the circumstances may be, his marital status or what that impending crisis meant, here's something that's very clear, and it's number three in your notes, that both singleness and marriage are gifts from God. And both single people and married people can live lives that bring glory to God and good to their own lives. Now, is it true that in the book of Genesis, the Bible says it's not good for man to be alone? I've created a helper for him. Yes. Is it true that historically, most people will get married? The answer is yes. But the Bible says some are gifted to be married and some are gifted to be single. And God blesses both, both the married folks and the single ones within the body of Christ. So I want to say to you this morning, beloved, if you're in here and you're single, whether you're single or married, you will find a great place to grow spiritually, to be loved, to be encouraged in your walk with the Lord right here at Huddle Bible Church. We love you, whether you're single or married. We're glad you're here. The fourth truth is this, that celibacy, sexual abstinence, is God's expectation of all who are single. You see that in verse 9? Paul says, look, if you're single and you cannot exercise self-control, and he's talking about self-control sexually, and by the way, if that's the case, maybe that's an indicator you should get married. And that's what he's saying. For it is better to marry, in other words, to express your sexuality as God intends in marriage, than to burn with passion. I want to just stop for a moment and say this. This is a countercultural message, is it not? Would you agree with that? Our world is not going to affirm that truth. Instead, in our hypersexualized world and culture, the only standard, the only standard, is that you be above the age of majority and that consent be involved. But beloved, that's not the biblical standard. The biblical standard is that sex is God's good gift for marriage and for marriage alone. So listen, single men, men and women whom I love and are in Christ and who are here. If you're a single man or woman today, God intends for you to be sexually 
abstinent for your own good and for God's great glory. That means premarital sex, not appropriate. Extramarital sex, no. It's not appropriate. Homosexual sex, no. It's not appropriate. Sex, the Bible says, is like a fire in the fireplace at home. If the fire is in the fireplace, it can be a source of light and warmth and comfort and joy and good things. But if if sex gets out of the if the fire gets out of the fireplace, it will burn the house down. God intended it for be to be in marriage and marriage alone. Let's go on. Let's look at verse 10. Paul says, To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. So what he's saying here is that there's a specific teaching from Jesus that he's pointing back to. In this case, if you might want to write it in your notes, your margin, it's Matthew 5.32 and Matthew 19.9. He's saying, to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. And then to the rest I say, and this time he says, this is I, not the Lord. This doesn't mean that this is Paul's opinion. What this means is this is authoritative apostolic teaching as Paul is being carried by the winds of the Holy Spirit writing Scripture. He has no specific reference from Jesus that he's pointing to. He's saying I, as an apostle, authoritatively say this, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any man has a husband, excuse me, if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. So here's what's going on. You've got two people living life in Corinth. One of them hears the gospel and repents and believes and experiences forgiveness of sin, experiences rebirth, receives eternal life in Christ, becomes part of the worshiping community, part of the church. But their spouse, their husband or wife, is still an unbeliever. So what Paul is saying is that If you become a believer and your spouse is not a believer, don't just assume that you're going to send them away or divorce them. Don't do that, he says. If they're willing to live with you, then you should live with them. Why? Well, the answer is in verse 14. He says, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. So, there's a couple of more principles here. And the fifth one, it's in your notes, will come from verses 10 and 11. 
Based on the teaching of Jesus that Paul reemphasizes, here it is, divorce among followers of Jesus should be very rare. Should be rare. Instead, when we marry as followers of Christ, through the ups, through the downs, through the good times and the hard times, through good health and sickness, when things are good financially and when they're not. You see, it's the reason why marital vows are what they are. It means that by God's grace, we're going to stay married to one another as long as we are alive for our own good and for the good of our families. So can I just underscore that again? Can I just say that that's still God's standard? That He expects husbands and wives to build marriages that go the distance for their own good, for God's great glory. And that's out of step with what our culture says, is it not? Now, I don't want to pretend that marriage is not sometimes a challenge. Let me ask a question, another question to the married folks in this room. How many of you would agree with me that it takes some work? It takes some intentionality. It takes perseverance to stay married and build a healthy marriage. How many of you would agree with that? Can I see your hands? And the rest of you that didn't raise your hand, you're lying. <laughs> right here in church. <laughs> on a Sunday morning. What do you have to do to stay married? By God's grace, you have to love one another. You have to honor one another. You have to submit as unto the Lord to one another. You have to prefer one another. You have to be reconciled to one another. You have to be restored to one another. You have to forgive one another. Forgiveness is like how we breathe. If we inhale something that causes us harm from our spouse, great harm, if we're unwilling to exhale that and let it go, then that stops the process of breathing. Do you understand me? If we don't inhale and exhale, we don't live. And that's true in our marital relationship. Forgiveness is like exhaling all of the things that we've taken in where we've been harmed. We have to continue to invest in one another. And maybe most of all, beloved church, we must pray for one another. And I just want to encourage you, husbands and wives, stay in the game.
Don't give up. Don't throw it away. Now, I don't want to be misheard this morning. Some of you would say, now, Pastor Michael, aren't there some occasions when divorce is warranted? And the answer is yes, and I want to refer to this back, and I know I've given the... Liz a curveball here, but it's in verses 15 and 16. I want, I want to read this for you because I want you to hear what Paul is saying. The answer to that question is yes. There are occasions where divorce is warranted. Look at verse 15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife? whether you will save your husband or how do you know husband, whether you will save your wife. There are occasions. Maybe you've experienced that. You've been abandoned by your spouse. God has set you free. You're to live in peace. Jesus was asked this very same question and he said, Moses gave you divorce because of the hardness of your heart, because of sexual immorality. And that's your choice. God's given you that choice to leave the marriage, if that's the case. But what Paul's teaching us here in this passage is, are those cases ought to be rare. Instead, in a church like ours, in a fellowship like ours, we ought to be characterized by marriages, that go the distance. And I want to encourage you today, beloved, that if you've hit a rough spot in your marriage, you have a time of struggle, a time of great hurt and pain, don't give up. Don't just assume that your next step is to abandon that marriage. Oh no, reach out for help. Reach out to us here in the church. If, if, if it's not us, we will provide resources for you. We want you to succeed. We want your marriage to last for your good and God's great glory. And the truth is that by God's grace, Christ can restore you. He can restore that marriage. He can bring about healing for God's glory. And again, for your good. There's another truth that came out of this passage, and, and it's not only that divorce among Christ followers should be very rare, but here's the last one. It's number six in your notes. Believing spouses should be a witness and a godly influence on their unbelieving mates. So what, so what Paul is not saying here is that you ought to marry an unbeliever. Listen, single person, man or woman, if you think you can marry someone and you can change them, dismiss that notion right now. (laughs) That's a lie. Only God changes people. Amen? Amen. Amen. And so, don't marry an unbeliever. (laughs) But if both of you were unbelievers when you were married and one of you becomes a believer, what Paul is saying is don't abandon the relationship. Instead, God may have placed you there to be a loving witness to your mate, to be a godly influence on your children. And who knows 
that God may use you so that your whole family comes to faith in Christ. Wow. What teaching that Paul gave us. What instruction. So let me ask again the question with which we began. Do you believe the Lord knows what's best for us? I sure do. And so, the question for every Christ follower in this room, the question for our church, the question for you is this. When it comes to sex, singleness, marriage, are you going to adopt the standards of the world? Or are you going to embrace what the Lord says is best for your life? And by His grace, and His grace alone, and by His glory, and for His glory, attempt to live that out through the power of the Holy Spirit every day. Let us pray. Lord, I thank You for Your timeless Word. Your Word that cuts between our soul and our spirit, but it pours into us truth. We thank You, King Jesus, that You said it would be good for us that You went away because You would send the Holy Spirit and He would come and He would lead us into all truth and convict the world of sin and of judgment and of righteousness. And Lord, I pray that as Your Word has gone forth today that that maybe you've convicted, uh, you've encouraged, but Lord, the promise is restoration and new life and new beginnings. Lord, would you do that today? In the name of Christ Jesus, we pray and ask these things. Amen. As you prepare, as we prepare our hearts to celebrate the Lord's table together, the Lord's Supper. I would ask you, as we worship in song, as you come and receive the elements, as we get ready to, to partake together, that please don't look at today as just ho-hum, just another day. We do this every Sunday. This is more than a memorial. We are celebrating the death the life, the burial, the resurrection, the glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we have open communion here, which means that if you're a follower of Christ, you're invited to this table. You don't have to show your membership card to come down. But I would ask you this, because of the seriousness of what we're doing, this is serious business that we are participating in right now, that you would open your heart to the Holy Spirit. Maybe there's some business that you need to transact with Him before you come. But you're invited to come. Let's worship together and then we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper. I want to take us back to the moment, the pinnacle moment of human history when Christ 
hung naked on the cross for all the world to see. And I want, as you hold the symbol of His body in your hand, I want to take you to that moment and I want you to, to think with me about what happened that day. You see, there was a cosmic transaction that needed to happen because there was a debt of sin. My sin. Your sin. The sin of the whole world. There was a debt that needed to be paid that none of us could pay. And so at that moment, when Christ cried out from the cross, Father, why have You forsaken Me? What was happening there, as Paul tells us, is that God was making Him to be sin on our behalf so that we could become the righteousness of God. What a glorious truth. Take and eat. And if you'll stay with me for a moment at the feet of the cross, because beloved, I want to remind us this morning that at the foot of the cross, all things are equal. There's forgiveness, redemption, peace. As His blood was poured out that day, as that storm that happened washed His blood down into those tombs and those who were in the tombs were risen, even then the resurrection power of Christ was being released because you see, in His blood is life. It's life for us eternal. We can be made clean, washed clean by the blood of Jesus Christ. Take and drink. We remember You, King Jesus. We could never ever thank You adequately for what You've done for us. Thank You, Father. Let's worship. God, I need You now. Amen? Amen. Maybe you've heard some words today from God's words that have stirred you. Maybe you're under conviction. I would encourage you today that take that conviction to Christ. Maybe it's a new thing for you and today's your day. Maybe He's calling you back. But embrace the forgiveness that's yours as you repent. Agree with God what's, with what's pleasing to Him and live for His glory and know that today Christ is waiting for you to cleanse you, to forgive you, to heal you, to give you new beginnings. That's the beauty of Christ, is it not? I'll be here at the front. There will be elders as well. If there's something you would desire to pray with us, we'd be honored and delighted to do so. And as you go, may the Lord bless and keep you. May the Lord cause His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord lift up His countenance to you this day and give you His perfect peace. And you are loved.
And God bless you today. You're dismissed.